It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Shawley. A fascinating episode for you today. 55 years ago this week, uh, the former Labour Minister, uh, Labour MP, John Stonehouse, was jailed at the Old Bailey. It was the conclusion of an extraordinary story of how he'd faked his own death in a beach in Miami, turned up in Australia, was eventually brought back uh, to the UK. Uh, I've been speaking to his daughter about a new book that she's written, putting her side of the story, what it was like uh, as a, the child of an uh, of MP caught up in all of that, and how she feels about her father today. So that's the big thing coming up on the episode. Uh, before that, it's our columnist panel. It's Thursday, so it must be night at the Marriott, except there is no night. India night is off, I don't know, stand-up paddleboarding or whatever it is that she's doing uh, this week. So we have got James Marriott, plus from the New Statesman, Rachel Cunliffe. Now, Rachel, before we get down to business, you're very excited about this, aren't you? Uh, I'm broadcasting with James, which has never <laughs> happened before. More than that, you've just tweeted, first time I ever broadcasted with James Myatt. I'm ridiculously excited. We've never spoken, but for some reason, I've always imagined we'd be best friends. I feel really stressed. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I have to wear best social performance. I don't feel funny enough today. <laughs> Channel your columns, James. Channel your columns. Now, Rachel, is this because you agree with his columns or not? Uh... I think I think it's because they make me laugh. And I feel like over the last year and a half, humour has been in very, very short supply and everyone's a bit too serious. Yes, I think you could well be right. There is definitely something in that. We can take, take the laugh to where we can get it. I know that, James, you love awkward social interactions, so I imagine you're really enjoying this. Yes, well, I, I kind of <laughs> seem to be the master of awkward social interactions somehow. I'm not, I'm not sure I love them, but I seem to end up in them all the time. So, <laughs> Well, go on then. Let's talk about your column first of all. Culture snobs find new ways to keep us down. Yes. Discuss. Um, well, the headline, the headline is maybe a little bit more combative than the column, but I've just always been really fascinated by um, by snobbery and especially the kind of disappearance of the old-fashioned kind of snob, the kind of dinner jacket wearing, opera going, uh, posh wine drinking sort of um, elite metropolitan person who was, you know, such a big deal in, you know, the kind of probably 30s, 40s, 50s for, you know, satirists and stuff. And I read a uh, fascinating academic paper, which has got an incredibly long title, I can't remember, which is called something like Objects and Elite Status or something. Have you got Genres, it? Objects and the Contemporary Expression of Higher Status Taste. 
why can't they call my column something that interesting? <laughs> um, you know how to have fun, don't you? <laughs> um, but it's really good because basically the argument of this, um, of this paper, and it might seem a bit obvious, but it put its finger on something, was that once upon a time, snobbery used to be about particular genres. So um, the kind of, if you want to display your elite uh, cultural tastes, you would uh, listen to classical music or go to the ballet or read sort of difficult poetry. Um, and you'd look down other genres. Now, basically, it's become more complicated and that... The authors say um, snobbery still kind of exists, but the thing nowadays is to know about a very broad range of genres, but to know within each within each of those genres which are the kind of which are the kind of socially prestigious things to like. So, um, you know, they say if you if you you know if you know about hip hop, you like Kendrick Lamar. If you like horror films, you kind of the culturally prestigious one is like Get Out, not The Human Centipede, um, and all these kind of more complicated rules, which they basically say. Um, sorry, if I'm, uh, this is taking too long. Um, <laughs> they basically say is because. Um, since the Second World War, society has become um, at least ostensibly more meritocratic. And to prove your social superiority, you don't want to seem like, you know, you have all this inherited privilege. You want to seem like an ordinary man of the people who's just risen to the top. So you have these egalitarian social, um, social, sorry, cultural interests within which um, you demonstrate your superiority by knowing about the particularly prestigious ones. And therefore you seem both a person of distinction, but also someone with kind of taste of the common man, which I think is... I just think it's so clever. I think that's true. I think that's what I think that's what people are doing, and I think you notice it everywhere now. Do you, do you notice it everywhere now, Rachel? Well, I was a bit surprised by that because I'm marrying someone who is a dinner jacket, wine loving, <laughs> opera fanatic, who, whose favourite contemporary musician or uh, composer is, is Wagner. So, wow. I, I, I think the old the old snobbishness probably does still exist. Then again. Uh, the other night, we, we've got into Love Island for the first time ever. And neither of us have ever watched it before. Um, and we feel OK about liking Love Island because it's all about game theory and psychology. It's not about people in bikinis. It's about watching the, the, the you know, it's, it's, it's the it's the prisoner's dilemma playing out in on, a, on an island in in Spain. So uh, maybe maybe we're a bit more guilty of that than we perhaps. But there, <laughs> like was, sort of, there were sort of layers of the snobbery, aren't there? Because the snobbery where you could say, well, I'm just not watching uh, um, Love Island because it's just all about bikinis. You could just say, we are going to watch Love Island because it's all about people in bikinis and their swimming trunks. But you're not. You're sort of trying to justify... You, you use a sort of different sort of snobbery to justify... So, so you're still being sn- slightly snobby about it, but your justification is your excuse. Yeah. Which is which is something that that James actually mentions in the column, the uh, writing about uh, Wonder Woman, the Marvel film, but saying it's all about its feminist themes or have its femi- has it has it turned against <laughs> contemporary feminism? And actually, you can you can do that with pretty much anything. I, again, Marvel films something that that we got into or that I got into over the the winter lockdown when there was literally nothing else to do, uh, and rather than just saying this is a really cool action film with really high production values. You can say the psychology is really interesting. Look what it's saying about race. Look what it's saying about contemporary America when really we're watching for the special effects. Exactly, because it's nice to switch, like he was saying. You know, you look for the funny in James's columns or you, you know, you're switching off for an hour and a half watching people blowing things up. That's totally fine. There doesn't need to be, uh, there doesn't need to be a message. I've even been, I've been accused of being a snob this morning, James. 
because uh, I tweeted uh, just before the show, as I always do, the question for the for the text in Rishi Sunak is following Boris Johnson and taking a staycation. So where would you send politicians on holiday this summer? Uh, lots of people have sent in perfectly fun, you know, jokey responses. Someone called Diana gets in touch. It's not a staycation. Many people don't go abroad each year. They holiday in the UK. It's still a holiday. A staycation is where you stay at home and go for uh, day trips. This whole staycation thing comes across as snobbery from those who can go abroad for holidays each year. No, it isn't. <laughs> I'm not. It's not being snob. I stayed at. I stayed on. Uh, stayed in the UK to go on holiday this year, but. But Twitter's particularly bad at this, isn't it? I can't uh, believe Jane, someone like, on Twitter is you... being so unreasonable. <laughs> <laughs> Just seems... Twitter, Twitter is terrible at this, though, because the, the, the controversy yesterday was an editor writing, saying, oh, what, what are other editors, what, what, what are the mistakes, the grammatical errors that you're sick of having to correct, which is something that any editor will have encountered. And the responses to that was, this, this is snobbish because, you know, some people use different grammar. And you're like, yes, and they are wrong. <laughs> and that's fine. <laughs> Somebody, yeah, um, uh, just to be absolutely clear, Colin's been in touch, Rachel, to point out that Wonder Woman is not a Marvel film. So, uh, is it not? No, apparently not. Uh, well, see, that, that's somebody else's it DC, of It's a DC Comics, that. isn't it? It's a different universe. Come on, Colin, well done for, <laughs> well done for correcting her. Um, but you get the same, it's the sort of, Twitter is particularly bad at this, and maybe this seeps into normal life as well, James. But uh, it happened last week with um, Allegra Stratton's suggestion that some of the small things that people could do uh, to help the environment, one of them was uh, to not rinse your dishes before you put them in the dishwasher. And you've got a whole load of people saying, well, that's not going to work because, you know, that's a tiny thing, you know, China will... Uh, you know, is building coal-fired power stations. That doesn't make any difference. She's, she's out of touch. Then a lo- another load of people say, well, who does that anyway? Then another load of people, other people can't afford. This typical, typical out-of-touch story. What about all the people who can't afford a dishwasher? What about all the people who can't afford dishes? What about all the people who, you know, uh, uh, what about people who can't even afford the food to put on the, pl- you know? And they're just using, social media is particularly bad at using Anything. It's, I suppose, snobbery and virtual signaling. Yes, yeah, is totally. A, is 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 their, their their unhappy bedfellows. I think. Yeah. I mean, I think this is all a kind of. It's all just a kind of status game, isn't it? That you can just show off in front of lots of people by having, you know, the cleverest, most morally, most morally good take on something. And of course, there's always a more morally good take on anything. And these things tend to become stranger and stranger, and you know, more and more sort of disconnected from reality. And sometimes things are just a little bit bad and, you know, fine. Or they're a little bit ambiguous and, don't know, we don't always need... What's the thing that you're most snobbish about, do you think, James? Oh, God. Um, Oh, no, do you know what? I probably am am a bit snobbish. Um, I I don't think I'm snobbish, but I very rarely watch TV. But that's out of this kind of paranoia. I think I should always be reading books to get opinion column ideas out of. Um, And if I ever watch TV, I feel a bit twitchy and I'm like bookshelf bookshelf <laughs> but i don't judge other people for it. i kind of judge myself i'm the exact should... opposite i'm terrible at reading books because <laughs> i spend too much time watching telly <laughs> uh, what about you rachel is, is, apart from trying to justify your love island uh <laughs> watching what's the thing you're most snobbish about it's probably grammar actually uh go, going back to the, the the writing properly not i, I realize that language is flexible and fluid and it changes over time but i'm also a classicist uh, and I feel like grammar is important. And if you want to be taken seriously and, and listened to, it's not unreasonable to try and speak and write according to the rules of the language that you're writing in. That's that's a very controversial opinion on Twitter. <laughs> but it's that whole thing that some things are facts. You know that the, 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 you can't. Well, you know, other people have different views on on facts. Well, they aren't. They're 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 not facts. Then are they? So if you're 
yeah, it just, I'm not sure you're necessarily being snobbish to say that people should should use the language uh, properly, but I suspect that others will um, get in touch. And uh, Oh, I'm going to get comments. I'm going to get comments. <laughs> Good old Twitter. Um, uh, Paul in Moscow has been in touch saying, I adore the snobbery of Basil Fawlty uh, in touch of class with Lord Melvery. Um, and that, yeah, that, all, all that with trying to, so people trying to sort of snob up uh, to, to match the, 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 the expectations of snobs. Anyway, I've probably used the word snob uh, quite enough on... Uh, on Actually, the... if, we're, if we're talking about Love Island, I should just say that various contestants are very good at turning their accents up or down, depending on who they're speaking to or what the what the mood of the villa is. Um, and that's why one of the reasons that I think that Love Island is actually fascinating from an ethnography point of view, and I'm definitely, <laughs> definitely watching it for that reason. <laughs> It's just boys with their tops off. Come on. Uh, now, um, uh, let's talk about Boris Johnson and Nicholas Sturgeon. Let's move away from... Or maybe, maybe there's, a bit, there's this sort of strange game the pair of them play all the time of uh, Boris Johnson goes to Scotland, uh, doesn't want to meet uh, Nicholas Sturgeon. Nicholas Sturgeon invites him to tea with a tweet, uh, knowing that he won't... Actually, the worst thing that could happen for Nicholas Sturgeon is he took her up on this offer because then she'd have to meet him. And actually not meeting him is exactly what she wants. And so both of them end up not meeting uh, and everybody's happy. It's a, it's a strange world we live in, Rachel. It, it is. Actually, as, as you say, they, they've both come out of this really well because what <laughs> Boris Johnson wants is to be, not to be seen to be pandering to Nicola Sturgeon in Scotland. And had he met her, he would have, she would have been able to play it as him visiting her country like a foreign dignitary, whereas, of course, he is prime minister of that country too. Um, so, so he wanted to avoid meeting her in order to look tough in, in that way. And she really wanted the chance to say, look, the prime minister has, has shunned me. And by shunning me, he has shunned and disrespected Scotland because everyone knows that she is the, the figurehead for, for Scotland. And so they both get exactly what they want out of this. And actually, I think that currently the tension between them and, and, and the, 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 the Scotland-Westminster tension is, is playing both of them perfectly towards their bases. Everyone else is kind of fed up and also a little bit worried if you believe in saving the union and you'd quite like there to be some move towards compromise and cooperation and working together on the future. But from their individual political perspectives, it plays perfectly for them. And we're just stuck in this pattern forever, James. Yeah, it's kind of see. I always think this about the, what you know. When is the going? When is the going? When is if there is there ever going to be a second India referendum? I mean, Michael Gove is kind of hinting what twenty twenty four after the next election, but what will they be saying in twenty twenty four? I mean, in a way, as Rachel says, this is kind of kind of quite a beneficial game that both of them are able to kind of play and have on the back burner as a sort of you know. Uh, playing to their playing to their particular constituencies. I mean, I suppose the game. You know, if if Nicola Sturgeon could win independence for Scotland, that would help. That would propel her into a whole kind of new new league of political success. But you know, if she were to lose that referendum, I just think for now, surely it's you know that's quite sort of for both of them to have that issue sort of bubbling away, nicely stoking up their bases is probably quite and sort of not a bad idea politically. Yeah, well, we just have to sit and watch, <laughs> knowing full well what they're both doing, but uh, having to uh, to observe it anyway. Uh, have you enjoyed your first interaction with James Marriott, Rachel? I think it's going okay. How do you think I'm doing? Do you think he I, likes me? I, it's difficult. I mean, he's, he's so snobby about everyone, it's difficult to tell. <laughs> James, how, how how's your interaction been? Yeah, well, I thought it was going well, but then um, then when Rachel said it was only okay, I, I feel a bit, <laughs> don't know, it's not better than that. I thought I was on sparkling form. Oh, well. 
Rachel Cunliffe from the New Statesman there and James Marriott from the Times. And of course, you can read James' column online right now. Go to thetimes.co.uk where you can get yourself a digital subscription. Right now, you can get your first month for free. Up next is my interview with Julia Stonehouse. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now it's time for this. 55 years ago this week, a Labour MP and former government minister stood in the dock of the Old Bailey and was sentenced to seven years in prison, condemned by the judge as a persuasive, deceitful and ambitious man. It was the climax of a bizarre story. Sounds like something out of uh, the rise and fall of Reginald Perrin. Uh, but it was a real-life story of John Stonehouse, a one-high-time flyer in the Labour Party. He faked his own death by leaving a pile of clothes on a beach in Miami, stole the identities of two dead constituents, flew around the world before settling in Australia. He only got caught in part because police thought he was Lord Lucan. He was accused in the press of being a fraudster, an adulterer, a thief, even a spy. Now, his daughter, Julia, has sought to tell the story of the man that she still calls a hero. It's called John Stonehouse, My Father, The True Story of the Runaway MP. Her book is out now. I'm delighted that Julia joins me this morning. Good morning, Julia. Morning. Uh, thanks so much uh, for joining us. And I've really enjoyed uh, reading. It was my holiday reading last week, uh, reading your uh, book. Before we get on to this extraordinary story, let's sort of do go back to the beginning, if you like. Describe your life in the early 1970s. Your dad's an MP, government minister. He's quite the high flyer, isn't he? Um, well, yes. I mean, uh, I spent my teenage years uh, looking at um, the red box on the um, you know, office table, um, working very hard. Um, yeah, I mean, I suppose you could call him a high flyer. And a happy family life. You you were, weren't aware that there was anything wrong before um, the events of 1974. Well, I was 23 when he disappeared um, and I'd left home at 18. So, um, you know, I wasn't, um, if, if you like, in the thick of it. I was, you know, leading my own life. So let's let's focus on those events then. It's uh, November the 20th, 1974, and it's announced by police in Miami that the Labour MP, John Stonehouse, is missing. We're tracing down every clue, every lead that we can get, and we're encouraging anyone who has any information that might help with the case to get in contact with us. This certainly is a mysterious thing that has happened here. So uh, let's describe, because this is, I mean, it was an enormous media story then, as it would be if it happened today. Police find his clothes in a neat pile on a beach in Miami. Describe the moment that you were told about this uh, and, and what, you, what you sort of made of it. Well, I, I was phoned at work and um, my, my two sisters and I um, went to my mother's house where we, we heard um, about it. Uh, from a colleague of my father and our first thought was that he had um, either had a heart attack um, 
or cramp, bad cramp while swimming because he was a phenomenal swimmer. I mean, he would think nothing of, of swimming from the shore out, you know, 300 yards or so, floating around a bit and then coming back. Um, obviously, you know, sharks came into it. You know, we're Florida. Has, uh, has he been eaten by sharks? Um, yeah, so that's what we thought. And, and we thought they were looking in the wrong direction because he swam so far out from shore we thought that the tides were, you know, they were they were expecting him to have gone down one end of the coast and not the other end, which he would have gone had he been swimming so far out, which he undoubtedly would have been. So, yeah. And so you spent quite a lot of time in the dark. Let's take a listen. It was your mother speaking at the time. I've heard some extraordinary rumours, and um, they're all so much out of character with my husband's personality that, uh, you know, I mean, they're just not worth answering or worth thinking about. I... I convinced in my mind that it was a drowning accident so that was that was as you were saying at the time you you were convinced that he, he had drowned uh, and mm. you were while he was and we'll discuss in a moment what he was getting up to and then the five weeks before he turned up the the media scrum that you and your family found yourself in was extraordinary wasn't it and you did you you recount it in the in the book in some detail but you know, having to run across fields to try and get in and out of a of a cottage that you were staying in, um, uh, and the and the media assuming that he was dead, uh, as everyone mm. was, essentially yeah. feeling like it was a free for all. They could write and say what they liked about him. Well, you can't sue somebody if they're you know for for um, libel and whatnot if uh, if they say something about you when you're dead. So yes, I'm afraid it was rather a scrum. It was actually horrific. Every day there was something. Every single day. I mean, just every permutation you can think of, a concrete coffin with, you know, hair samples required, a Nigerian found floating in the Thames, uh, the mafia, insurance fraud, I mean, all sorts of things. And uh, so much of it, we just literally couldn't understand. I mean, you know, the insurance policies were five years, five years, five years, seven years. Um, They could never be claimed without a body. And then there was uh, one for 10 years, which he took out. My mother, in fact, took out shortly after his car was blown to smithereens by an IRA bomb at Heathrow Airport. So that seemed to us entirely sensible to take out life insurance, you know. But he got 30 years for life insurance. And the uh, let's touch on the, the, the allegations of him being a Czech spy. It reached such a um, uh, sort of fever, if you like, that even the Prime Minister, Howard Wilson, had to make a statement about it in the House of Commons. Yeah. I mean, the, the, first of all, the, the defector who said this, he'd never seen the file, never given him any money, never you know, even met the man. But there was a file, a Czech file in the embassy. But anybody who'd gone over to Eastern Europe... Um, would would acquire a file and he had gone there with the cooperative society and um he had arranged the twinning of his constituency of Wednesbury with the the town of Pladno and um there is in fact still if you go there today Pladno you'll see there's a street called Wednesbury um so that's kind of how how meetings started and and he did have meetings he also had meetings about trying to sell them the VC10 commercial aircraft to the Czech and national air, air, airlines. And um, it wasn't just them. He sold them to Middle East Airlines, Ghana Airways, you know, all kinds of people. In fact, that's why he was made a privy councillor, because he sold more exports than anybody else. Um, so, yes, he did have meetings with them. But my contention is that um, 
first of all, there are no secrets in the file. I mean, everybody says that. Um, nobody can find a single secret in there. What we're talking about is lo- what they call low-level information. Um, and um, uh, some say it's not even uh, stuff from the Times newspaper or, or Hansard or, you know, the, the Westminster Reference Library collection of periodicals. It's, it's more like gossip. So we can immediately go from spy to gossip, okay? Let's, let's say an agent. But my contention with that is that nobody has ever phoned us and said, well, look, they've got an address in this file, uh, which is 22 Aldwyn Road. Uh, did you ever live there? And the answer to that is no. So they have this system of calling him to meetings, which involved uh, cutting uh, a piece out of the Times with the date showing and then sending it to him, and that would be calling him to a meeting a week hence. It was always lunchtime. By default, it was Beale's Restaurant in Holloway Road. And if they put a Roman numeral two next to the date, that indicated the meeting was to be held at the Black Horse um, pub in Catford. Um, The problem is, um, you know, we never lived at this address they had for us. And yet, in the file, they have 27 reports being sent back to Prague talking about this time's method of calling him to meetings well we never lived there <laughs> yeah 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 and you go you go into that in some uh, some detail in the, in the book too so all that all this is swirling around he's assumed to be dead allegations rumors gossip uh, swirling in the papers and then it's christmas eve 1974 so five weeks after he went missing the family's up late wrapping christmas presents reminiscing about your father uh, as uh, as anyone uh, would do at christmas um it's late at night the phone rings yeah, it's, it was one o'clock and a journalist phoned and said, there's been a report that your father's uh, turned up in Australia. Um, and um, the, 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 that there would be a, a press conference in Melbourne at four o'clock, our time, 4 a.m. So uh, we put the phone down and then the phone just never stopped ringing. So we um, decided to take the phone off the hook and wait until 4 a.m. until we got, um, you know, the press conference news. First of all, we thought it might be his brother because he he had lived in Australia. He was a pilot uh, for BOAC. And, um, you know, we thought they'd, they'd got things mixed up. So we were kind of elated. Then we would have thought, no, it's a mistake. And we didn't know what to think. Um, and then at four o'clock, we got the news and it was um, um, my father on the phone saying um, to my mother, uh, yes, please come to Australia and bring Sheila with you. Yes. So, so we, let, let, let's explain right. in this already quite complicated story. Let's explain who Sheila okay. Buckley is. OK, so Sheila Buckley was my father's mistress and secretary. Um, and um, she is she's so maligned, really, Sheila. She's had a really rough deal. She should never have been convicted of two years, which she got a two year conditional charge. Everybody thinks she was, quote, in it from the beginning. Um, but basically, Sheila, what happened was he called her after he in the period when he was missing. He called her from Hawaii a couple of times. He met her in Copenhagen for a day and a half. And uh, he said, would he, would you write to him? And, and she subsequently wrote him four letters. But all of that was after he disappeared. What uh, really threw things uh, for Sheila was that there was a newspaper article in February 1975 that said, her clothes, my father had arranged for her clothes to be sent out in a trunk. It's actually quite a complicated story involving a red Samsonite suitcase and one thing and another. But anyway, um, this was in the newspapers. It was picked up by the other newspapers. 
when we went to committal in October 75 back in the UK, it was repeated by the newspapers and, and it all went to trial and so on. But anyway, the point is that the customs officer who opened that trunk, a man called Robert Hill, when he opened it, there were no women's clothes in that trunk. Um, so it was a completely kind of made up story. But, but um, she, I mean, uh, the, the thing that really strikes me is that she did, although she, you'd say that she didn't know about it before he disappeared, he, she mm. had known for some time that he was in Australia, uh, was writing no. letters to him. Uh, she, she, she'd known about it. Certainly, you know, you thought your father was dead and she, she had known mm. about it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, you know, uh, credit where it's due, she obviously it's, it's annoying when somebody knows your father's dead and you think he's been eaten by sharks, you know. But um, she was worried about his mental health um, and um, thought he might commit suicide and she was just protecting him. And uh, when we realised um, that he had, in fact, had this uh, terrible breakdown, which my mother realised as soon as she arrived in Australia, which she she flew to Christmas Day, basically. Um, you know, his voice was really high. It was high pitched. He lost weight. He was just completely not himself. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he was uh, he had a breakdown, no, no doubt about it. And probably uh, I say probably very much so exacerbated by overdosing on Mandrax, um, yeah, that, a drug. That's, yeah, that's the drug. That I know it was uh, was later. But let's explain what what was going on in Australia. Uh, each morning he gets up uh, in Australia and he goes and buys a copy of the Times, as everyone should do, to find out what's going on back home. Um, uh, but he'd, as I explained in the introduction, he'd taken the, the identities of two uh, constituents, Joe Markham and Clive Mildoon. I mean, that, that in itself is, a, is a, I think we'll agree, a pretty appalling thing to have done. Uh, and then set about opening up this sort of incredibly complicated network of bank accounts in the two names. So complicated, in fact, that it, it seems as if even he struggled to keep across what he was doing. Definitely. I mean, he, he booked into one hotel using the name Markham and Mildoon. I mean, he, 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 the, the, the guy on reception was completely confused. He didn't know who he was because he used two names. And then he got a little apartment on Flinders Street. Um, and the, he told Mr. Wilcox that his name was Markham and he told Mrs. Wilcox his name was Mildoon or vice versa. And um, they were confused. I mean, he was confused. He didn't know who he was. He was going into banks. He was caught. He, he was spotted literally a day and a half after arriving in Melbourne because of his own ridiculous behaviour. Um, he was taking large money money out of one bank and in one name and putting it in another bank in another name. And it, um, there was a guy called Mr King who worked at the second bank and his regular lunchtime routine was to have his, his sandwiches in his uh, staff room and then go for a walk along Collins Street where all the banks are and he saw the man he knew as Mildoon uh, coming out of another bank uh, where he, the um, teller there told him his name was Markham. And the two of them put their heads together. I mean, he'd been in Melbourne a day and a half in the, and they already called the police. You and know, they thought fraud was going on. And they thought there's a, there's a uh, well-dressed, posh Englishman behaving peculiarly, opening up bank accounts in, in uh, uh, strange names. And they think maybe it's Lord Lucan, who's also gone missing around the same time. How Explain how they established that it wasn't Lord Lucan. They, they never thought it was Lucan. I'm afraid that's one of the, the myths. Um, Lucan only kind of came into the subject when one of Sheila's letters were opened. And um, because of the insurance issue, 
And of course, my mother would have been a beneficiary had she ever claimed, which of course she never did. Um, the, 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 the issue then would have been, um, did she murder him? That was another news story at the time. Did my mother murder my father for the insurance money? And so the word murder was in that letter. And that was the first time that the police thought, oh, murder. You know, what's this? Because it was all coded, the letter. Nobody could understand it. I mean, if you read the letters, they're completely incomprehensible, um, you know, especially to my father um, and certainly to the police. Um, so that was kind of what kind of alerted them to the whole Markham issue. Yeah. And then he was uh, uh, arrested and uh, ultimately was uh, did come back to the UK. Uh, so he's in Australia. He asked your mother to go out to Australia to 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 meet him. He also asks her to bring his mistress with her to Australia, uh, which um, I mean, he, tre- he treated your, your mother particularly badly, didn't he? Including, as you recount in, in your uh, book, I mean, he physically assaulted her on one occasion, grabbing her hair, banging her head up and down, beating oh, her with a telephone yeah. handset until it shattered. He, he behaved appallingly to your, to your mother. He did. he did. But you've got to, to bear in mind, Matt, all of this is completely out of character. My father was never, ever violent. Um, this this was all completely, you know, new to us. And um, you've got to remember, too, that he was withdrawing from Mandrax Mogadon, where, which, which he'd been, you know, taking too much of, basically, for two years. A drug, uh, it started as methqualone, and he took that from 1966 when he was um, under Secretary of State at the colonies. He was flying all over the world, and um, he put a little label attach it to his shirt saying please don't wake me I I don't need water or drink Uh, because when he got off the plane he would um, you know go straight into meetings and of course uh, 66 we're talking about a lot of countries becoming independent or planning to and a lot of work going on a lot of flying around and he would take the methoqualone to sleep on the plane so he taking it for a long time but when he when he got to 72 and a lot of a lot of particular stress came along uh he started taking too many of them and in a cocktail with um mogadon and um he was he was um withdrawing Julie, i'll tell you what the thing that really struck me reading the book is how uh and maybe this is this is just a relationship of father daughter how amazingly forgiving uh you are of him given that he was happy for you to think that he was dead, he was going to turn up in, you know, he it had all gone according to plan, he would have never seen you again. You'd assumed he was dead and he would have started this new life in Australia. And then, uh, you know, the way he treated your mother and, uh, the, you know, the, his business interests, his political interests, you, you're, you're amazingly forgiving of it. Where Lots of people would have thought, I could never have forgiven my father for, for behaving in the way that he did. It's not, it's not just me, Matt. It's my whole family. You know, my mother, you know, siblings, um, you know, everybody in our immediate family, uh, because we completely understand that he had a serious mental breakdown. Um, and he, he was he was getting drugs, Mandrax, Mandis, Quaaludes, whatever you want to call them, uh, from a variety of doctors. He'd walk down the, the corridors of the House of Commons and uh, he'd see a doctor and he would get a prescription from him and then he'd see another one and get one from him and his own doctor and the House of Commons doctor. And, you know, I opened up his when, when my when my parents, uh, when my mother went to Australia in, at Christmas after he reappeared, um, I went to stay in their house in Kennington um, 
and my parents had separate bathrooms. I don't think my mother was aware of how many drugs he had, but um, I, I was in the guest bedroom. So now I'm using the same bathroom he had. And I opened up the cabinet one day and there were three rows, you know, those little cabinets with kind of, you know, little, little shelves, three rows of bottles of Mandrax and Mogadon. I mean, it's completely ridiculous. Um, he, he and he he was just knocking them back because he'd been taking them on a regular basis, ad hoc basis since 1966. Um, he thought he was safe with them. But of course, the more you take, the more you need and so on and so forth. And um, he I wouldn't say overdosing. I mean, he didn't you know die of them. But at the same time, he was knocking them back. Something ridiculous. And Mandrax can drive you crazy, drive you to suicide. I mean, that's why it's been banned since 1984. Uh, to, Ten years too late for my father. So there he is. He's in Australia, initially refusing to uh, even to give up his seat in the House of Commons. Uh, so he wants to stay in Australia because he wants to face justice then, uh, there instead. Eventually does come home uh, to face the music, to face the charges that we were discussing uh, a few moments ago. Uh, and he spoke to the BBC when he was back in Britain. I have been sick. My psychiatrist confirms that. And I think uh, a member of Parliament, like anybody else in any other job, is entitled to some consideration during a period when he has some sort of illness. Uh, of course I regret it, and, I, 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 and I'm sorry for all the anguish that's been created, deeply sorry. Uh, but uh, in my confused state, I thought, frankly, that the old John Stonehouse was better dead than alive. It's an extraordinary thing, and there he is reflecting on the, the uh, um, describing his own illness, as you describe it as, as, as well, Julia. Uh, later, like I said, he, he was jailed. He was later uh, released early from uh, prison on health grounds. He then divorced your mother, married his mistress and former secretary, uh, Sheila Buckley, and had a child with her too. And then uh, your father sadly died in 1988 um, from a heart attack. I'm. I, how do you reflect on him now? Reading your book where you describe how uh, you say that for most people, John Stonehouse will forever remain the infamous runaway MP. But to me, my wonderful father was a hero. And I, I, I confess, I, I really struggled with that uh, sentiment uh, reading your... I mean, it's, a, it's a lovely book, but I really struggled with that sentiment, given the extraordinary story, the extraordinary... Even as he described there, the anguish that he put you and your, your family through. Well, you know, 18 people will commit suicide today, most of them men. And... Um, you know, mental health is is an issue that, um, you know, you don't go blaming people for committing suicide. You don't blame them for having a nervous breakdown. That would be completely, you know, out of order. Um, and look at the work he did. Nobody ever talks about the work he did. I mean, he was such a, a fierce anti-colonial fighter. Um, and um, I mean, he paid the price for that because behind this whole story, I mean, we're talking about, if you like, the 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 drama of it. But behind all this, there's there's politics. You know, there's there's the forces that worked against uh, um, anti-colonialism. Um, we had all kinds of. I mean, we had bomb threats, the kidnapping threats. You know, blacks go home painted on the front steps. I mean, it, you know, on the pavement outside. I came out the house and stood in a great puddle of industrial super glue. Couldn't move. You know, I mean, we. We we uh, paid a price in, 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 as a family, you know, for that. If you fight that battle, you're up against a lot of forces. And the the what was going on behind is actually a very interesting side of this story, uh, which nobody ever talks about, except, of course, I do. And um, I consider him a hero because of the work he did politically. And you do, you, you tell that story uh, well in your, your book as well. Julia, it's been lovely to speak to you. Julia Stonehouse. 
That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from?